0: So he rummaged around in the glove compartment for something and then he turned around and I realised it was was a gun.
1: From Stylist, this is Nobody Told Me. Stories of life, love, grief, success and failure and the lessons learned by the women who survived to tell the tale. I'm your host, Lisa Smzarski, Editor-in-Chief of Stylist. In today's episode, we're joined by Nicola Rayner, Nicola is a journalist and author currently living in London. Originally from Abergavenny in South Wales, Nicola spent her early 20s travelling in South America. On the final leg of her travels, Nicola found herself in her dream city, Buenos Aires in Argentina, a country she says she instantly fell in love with. But her romance with the country came to an abrupt end when one evening, a taxi ride turned to total terror and she was abducted at gunpoint. This is Nicola's story in her own words. My name is Nicola Rayner and nobody told me I would survive being
0: abducted at gunpoint. I've always found dancing to be very freeing. It makes you feel good and it makes you feel like yourself. I had done ballet lessons uh, when I was a child and I'd done a little bit of Scottish dancing as well, which which is quite different. I have to say, I wasn't very good. I'm not naturally terribly elegant or graceful. I've always been a little bit shy and quite bookish. At school I worked really hard and I studied really hard. And I suppose dancing is one of those ways of letting go and letting go of all of that and getting out of your head and being in your body. be honest, I always knew that I wanted to be a writer, that that was the thing that I wanted to do the most. But I, I studied classics at Oxford. I think in truth, I would have liked to have done English literature or creative writing, but I'm not sure I had the confidence. I did a bit of salsa at university, and I really enjoyed that. And I found it really, really freeing. Salsa is very much a party dance, it's quite easy to pick up, it's really fun, it's really flirty, it's very light-hearted. Uh, it doesn't matter if you don't do it perfectly. <laughs> After I graduated, I had a series of different jobs. I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't know how to go about it. I was quite intimidated by things like newsrooms or the idea of getting on a magazine internship at that stage. I worked for a bookshop for a while and that was a way of being closer to books and being closer to stories. I went out to Uganda for quite a few months and volunteered at an orphanage there because it was a way of uh, making myself feel useful and helpful I think after feeling a little lost after university. I knew I wanted to see South America. I always had this very romantic idea about South America and the dances out there, Um, the salsa, samba, the Argentine tango. I wanted to get to know these dances better, and I thought it might be an opportunity to develop my writing. I actually flew out to Ecuador, so I travelled to Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Chile then I flew up to Brazil where I was was for carnival and traveled around in Brazil and Argentina was always going to be the last country I visited and interestingly it was the country that I completely fell in love with as well. With my work placement on Time Out, the editor picked up on the fact that I really loved the tango, was very interested in it and wanted to become better, so he gave me the nice job of editing the tango section. It was a really exciting and happy time, and I felt like it was a place I could really belong. When I first landed in Argentina, at the airport, there was someone handing out leaflets warning about the dangers of taking taxis in the city. Uh, And I remember glancing at it, sort of shoving it into my handbag and thinking, I'll probably be all right. I'd been travelling for quite a few months then and I sort of thought I had the savvy, uh, you know, to be able to tell the difference between a dodgy taxi and, uh, and a decent one. It was 2005, so... It wasn't so very long after the economic crash out there and I was aware of poverty and I was aware of anger. I don't suppose I built up a bigger picture uh, of quite how dangerous it it could be until what happened to me. And I realized I was in a place that was not as safe, not as settled, maybe not quite the paradise I, I naively thought it to be when I first arrived. I'd had a late night the night before at a party, and I don't think I'd had a huge amount of sleep. The next day I had gone to pick up my uncle, Richard, from the airport because he'd flown into town for a conference. I remember in the evening I'd gone for supper with Richard. I remember that I only had a a small bottle of beer because I was still feeling so tired, from the night before and I was a little jittery because after seeing my uncle, I was going to meet someone I liked very much and go out for a late night drink with him. So my mind was a little bit on that. I wanted to spend the time with my uncle, but I also knew I had this date to keep later. Richard had picked up on the fact that I had somewhere else to be afterwards. So we left the restaurant together We stopped at a a rank of taxis, a line of taxis. And the first taxi, I think someone else had, had just got in before us and he pulled away, so I got into the taxi behind. Nobody told me that that decision would lead to me being abducted at gunpoint. I was really lucky because I knew Buenos Aires very well by that stage. i had been living in the city for a few months. So I knew the route he was taking me on was a very strange route. So I started to ask him where we were going or, or what direction we were going in. And he kept sort of fobbing me off and saying one more block and then we'll turn and another block and then you'll recognise it. That sort of thing. And for a little while I I tried to settle down and just think he was taking me on this securitist route, possibly for a higher fare. I think on the one hand, I'd been thinking, this doesn't feel right, this doesn't feel safe. But on the other hand, I'd thought, well, you're a bit tired, you're a bit nervous, you you could have read this wrong. He stopped at a traffic light, and I suddenly realised I really didn't feel very safe at all, and that he'd been fobbing me off for far too long. And I remember going to open the door just thinking suddenly that I needed to get out of the situation that it wasn't right and I remember going to open the door on my right and he turned round and manually locked the door, he just turned round and locked it and I knew then that something wasn't right at all, that he was trying to keep me in the car. So he rummaged around in the glove compartment for something, and then he turned around as if to pass it to me. I put my hand out as if to receive something, and I realized it was, it was a gun. So we stopped at the traffic lights. He's locked the door. He's pulled the gun on me. And then he has to start driving. There was a, definitely a tussle, and I remember him grabbing my hair and kind of holding it down on the car seat. I remember at one stage, I imagine earlier picking up my mobile to try and call someone and him throwing that away from me, throwing it across the car. and then it's quite fragmented. The next thing I remember really clearly is being on quite a busy road, an autopista like a like a motorway with many lanes of traffic sort of starting to go out of town. And I think at that stage, he would have had to focus on the road and take his hand off me, or certainly take his concentration off me. And I was able to pull away from him and push my head out of the window of the car and start calling for help. He was driving very erratically I remember him sort of weaving across the road. And I remember thinking very clearly that we were going to crash, that we were going to be in a car crash. And the last thing I remember in the car is being very, very close to, I think, a red car on my right-hand side and thinking it was so close. I remember thinking I could touch it, that I could push off it. And I remember leaning out of the car and pushing off that red car and that must have been what made me lose my balance. And I came out of the vehicle, sort of between the two cars. um, And then he drove off, leaving me on the road. I got up, and I crossed a couple of lanes of traffic. And then I I fell to my knees in a sort of prayer position to flag down uh, other cars. Something that I realised later, that the reason I fell to my knees was because I couldn't stand, because I'd broken both my ankles. I'd also cut the back of my head quite badly, so I had blood all over my face, so I must have looked pretty terrifying. I remember very much the view from lying on the tarmac and looking up at everyone. It was, it was quite a strange view. And I remember one quite young man holding my hand talking to me and just being human and kind and reassuring me and asking me what had happened and that uh, it was just such a to this day I'm just so grateful for him I don't know how long we were all there together before the ambulance came I remember I really didn't want to get in the ambulance I felt very panicky about being put on the stretcher and restrained because of what had just happened to me I really didn't want to be in an enclosed space with strangers again. That's my only memory actually of the ambulance before I before I got to the hospital. I was in and out of hospital a bit. The break in my right ankle was a really bad break so I had to go back into hospital longer term to have it operated on. It was a really strange time, it was very scary, I was in a lot of pain and I was on quite a lot of drugs for the pain as well. I was just so lucky to have my uncle with me and my friends around me. I had a visit from the police in the middle of the night, which was quite strange, right in the middle of the night they came to visit me and were quite odd and quite aggressive and. Uh, registered the incident as a robbery because he'd driven off with my handbag which I I still feel is very much a misrepresentation of what happened. I also heard in the hospital in those days afterwards that someone had stolen a radio taxi that night so it always occurred to me that he could have been someone who you know an opportunist who'd stolen the car um, and just gone out to see what he could get I don't know exactly what he had planned for me, but I'm quite disciplined about thinking about what could have happened next. I, I don't really let myself too much because it's it's too frightening, to be honest. In between all of these kind of stressful meetings and scary operations and things like that, there are these moments of complete elation and gratitude and relief to be alive I remember the sky being this bright, bright blue and uh, the the houses outside being these elegant sort of white townhouses and the, the white of the townhouses against the blue of the sky and hearing old men chatting on their balconies to each other outside and drinking their morning coffees. And I felt very alert and alive to the world and all its beauty as well as obviously all the... the, the the terrible things that had happened to me as well. It was a strange uh, roller coaster of emotions. Because I had fallen in love with Argentina so deeply, and I loved my work, and I loved, I loved everything I'd been doing with the magazine, and and learning about the tango. Initially, I thought, oh, I can, you know, I can recover here and get back to normal. But it, it, it relatively quickly became clear that I I couldn't stay out for that long and that I would be best going home to my family. I think I was in a wheelchair for a a couple of months. It happened in May and I was definitely in a wheelchair I think for June and July, um, maybe starting to get up on crutches by August that year. I had to do a lot of physio. I had to learn how to walk again. So, for the first, I would say something like the first three months, I was really focused on that physical recovery. And although I started to have flashbacks and nightmares in the early days, that side of things actually didn't get really bad until I was physically stronger. I don't know if it's because I was so focused on the physical recovery that there almost wasn't room to absorb the psychological effects. I have flashbacks a lot at night when I would go back to the moment when he pulled the gun on me. I would relive, relive that over and over and over again every time I closed my eyes. Then I started to have panic attacks as well during the day. Um, there were so many things that triggered them, being in enclosed spaces, being in, being in cars with people I didn't know very well, strange men being in my space. I was, I was constantly on, on red alert and seeing dangers where there, where there weren't dangers. I'd gone to the Citizens Advice Bureau. I think it was to do with my preparation to go back to work. I was very keen to find a job and to get back to work. But for whatever reason, I ended up losing my temper with the woman who worked there, who was only trying to help me. I think PTSD uh, and uh, anxiety-related kind of attacks like this can make you very short-tempered. And after I'd got so cross, she said, I don't think you're ready to go back to work yet. I think you need to sort yourself out a little bit and, 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 and get better. So straight after coming out of my appointment with her almost on a whim. I called uh, someone I'd seen before a few years ago for trying to give up smoking. Um, He was an acupuncturist, but he also uh, used a technique called emotional freedom technique, which is about tapping the acupressure points on your body. It's a funny therapy, it sounds strange when you describe it, but it's about tapping your pressure points and saying a few affirmations and it was amazing. It's something that helped me enormously, and I look back on it as probably the first step in my on my on the road to recovery. I think I realised I had to take responsibility for my own recovery; that nobody else was going to make it better for me, and I had to really commit to it and work quite hard emotional freedom technique was an amazing step. And there were other things that helped me along the way. I found a puppy that autumn, a Jack Russell puppy, um, who's, who's still with me today and completely fell in love with her and she's been a big part of my recovery. But there were other things too. I gave up alcohol for a while. I, a friend of mine lent, lent me some tapes that taught me how to breathe slowly and properly again because I was hyperventilating for so much of the time and with the puppy I started spending more time outside, getting a bit of fresh air and I began to dance again It must have been quite early on still in my recovery because I remember I was in trainers which you, you know I wouldn't normally dance in so my ankles must have still been sort of mending and I remember leaning on my partners quite heavily because again my right ankle certainly wouldn't have been properly better yet but it felt so good it felt so good to be dancing again and to be doing the tango again and to be out with people it was was an important turning point I realised because of what happened to me how fragile life is and how thin the line is between terrible things happening to you and them not happening. And I think that really helped with clarity when I returned home and I realised I really wanted to commit properly to being a writer. Although, as I discussed earlier, I'd had confidence issues before, I think I realised I sort of had to get over those and just get on with it. So... The following year, I applied for an NCTJ course in central London and I started to write for some other publications and I really... I really felt I I got going with my writing after... after perhaps delaying it for so long. I really committed to it. In some ways, I'm so grateful for what happened to me. I'm so grateful I got away, of course. Um, And I'm so grateful to the life I had afterwards. It happened to me when I was 25, but all the things that have happened to me since, I look at as an amazing bonus or gift somehow because I know I might not have had them. My career as a writer, the fact I've written a couple of novels, which was, that was my biggest ambition for so long, meeting my husband and having him in my life, my nephews and nieces, my my dog, my puppy, all, all these things that have happened to me since, I look at them with such gratitude because I'm always aware that I might not have had those things. I would also say it, it taught me a lot about listening to that, that gut instinct, which is what I believe got me out of the situation. Um, I sometimes wonder about him but largely, largely, I, I, I'm just grateful and I'm just happy to be getting on with my life.
1: You're listening to Nobody Told Me. I'm your host, Lisa Smazarski, and you've been listening to the story of Nicola Rayner. Nicola's story is a stark reminder of how quickly life can take an unexpected turn. Although it's highly unlikely most of us will ever be the victim of a violent crime like this, her story is an extreme example of how unpredictable the path of life can be, and why we all must be ready to adapt and change. For most of us, this unpredictability will probably relate to far more mundane matters. From our careers, either through redundancy, or perhaps a new opportunity that will take us elsewhere, to our romantic relationships that so often blossom or break when we least expect it. Unpredictability, it seems, is the one constant in all our lives. And never have we felt that more than in a year a pandemic changed life for every single one of us around the world. If there's one thing i've learned through adulthood and more recently in 2020 it's that our ability to adapt to and even expect change in whatever shape it comes to us will help us to navigate life not many of us can truthfully say how we would respond in nicola's situation but undoubtedly her quick thinking was critical to her survival in the cold light of day it's hard to imagine you would ever have the courage to throw yourself from a moving car onto a motorway or to attempt to walk with two broken ankles. But as Nicola's fight-or-flight instincts kicked in on that motorway, she proved that when we least expect it, our bodies and our minds can do remarkable things. And her story of survival was just that, remarkable. The abduction is now something that will always be part of Nicola, from the long-lasting effects of PTSD that she has had to learn to manage but that will always be part of her, to the way that she now looks at the world. Nicola has lived through something that most of us will only ever understand from watching a film or reading a book, but she has been forced to look death in the eye. It's hard to imagine any normality after such a terrible thing. So it's both incredible and inspiring to hear that this horrible, horrific event also became the catalyst for something so positive For Nicola to grab hold of her dreams, the ones she had suppressed for so long through fear of rejection or failure, to become the writer she knew she could be. And it's that that I take and learn from Nicola. Chase your dreams, give it a go at least, and don't wait until tomorrow, because we never know what tomorrow will bring. Thank you so much to Nicola for joining us on Nobody Told Me and sharing her story. Nicola's debut novel, The Girl Before You, was published to great success last year and is still available from all bookshops. Her second book, You and Me, is released on October 1st, 2020. Sadly, this is the final episode of this series of Nobody Told Me, but don't forget you can go back at any time and listen to the incredible stories told in this series, including those from author and influencer Candice Brathwaite, fitness guru Lucy Wyndham-Reed and Paralympian Kadena Cox, as well as many more brilliant, inspiring women. And thank you to every single one of them for sharing their brilliant stories. We would still love to hear your thoughts on this series of Nobody Told Me and the incredible stories shared by our guests. So please do leave a rating or review in the podcast store. And if you have a story and the lessons you learned from it that you want to share in the next series of Nobody Told Me, or you know someone else whose story we should share, email ntm at stylist.co.uk. For more inspiring stories from women around the world, visit stylist.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening to this series of Nobody Told Me.